Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to The Bullshit Filter, Syrian Civil War, episode 1.6. Hey, Ray. Mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's hot, it's humid, it's muggy. Uh, fucking still got a tropical cyclone going on outside my window, but uh, damn. Hmm. How about you? You good? You're gonna make it. You're, oh yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm uh, yeah. Everybody's asleep. It's late here. Well, it's kind of late here for you. It's not late, obviously, but uh, everybody's asleep. So I'm just recording in my closet with you, spending quality time with you, <laughs> with our bladder sessions. <laughs> bladder deployment. Bladder podcasting. Bladder deployment. Yeah. Bladder podcasting at its finest. At the end of the last episode, 1.5, we were talking about the 1973 OPEC oil embargo, the oil crisis crashing, not just the American economy, but economies around the world having to deal with this. Mm. And uh, we're going to pick up from where we left off talking about the impact of that on a whole bunch of different things, including the relationship between the U.S. and various entities in the Middle East. Gotcha. Um, During this period, Western Europe began switching from pro-Israel policies to more pro-Arab policies, which had an impact on the NATO alliance. And one of the reasons why this happened is the United States' importations of oil from the Middle East. Importations? I'm not sure that's a real word. I think I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> importation. The imputation of my importation is... Anyway, the US imported only about 12% of its oil at the time came from the Middle East. Right. Today, it's even less. But at the time, about 80% of European oil and 90% of Japan's oil came from the Middle East. Mm. So this... Uh, Embargo and price rise and cut in production and etc. really had a much bigger impact on the economy of Europe and Japan. And so they had to try and pacify the Arabs and do deals and take stronger stances towards Israel. The US, however, remained staunchly committed to its support of Israel. Or at least that's the official story. Because what we're going to see is behind the scenes, mm, yeah, it's not so straightforward. So what you're saying is you're going to filter the bullshit. Yes. <laughs> okay, just checking. Now, one thing that happened here is this embargo quickly turned Saudi Arabia into a major player in world politics. Uh, forced Washington, along with the Europe and Japan, to treat the Saudi royal family with a lot more respect. They realised their strategic yeah. importance to the US economy. Now, it's not to say that the Saudis hadn't been important strategically and economically up to this point, but when you know a single nation can cripple the US economy overnight, 
it all Damn. of a sudden they get your attention. Are you paying? <laughs> are you listening now? They said. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and to think, you know, the US, as we said in the last episode, was supporting Israel um, in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, whilst, you know, the, the, the Saudis and these other Arab oil producing nations had such leverage over the US economy, it's a, a game of amazing brinkmanship. Anyway, came back to bite yeah. them on the ass. I was just going to say, real quick, it would have been nice if the United States could have said, you know, they were going to go nuclear on your ass, and we stomped them. How about cut your prices in half? But I guess you really can't. You can't do that. Well, they did do that in a way. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, another thing that happened here is when the when they quintupled the uh, or quadruple, I think it was the oil price. The Saudis' right. levels of wealth reached insane levels. This is when the Saudi royal family started driving Mercedes Benz made out of solid gold. They be- they became insanely rich. They had so much money floating around. It was crazy and a huge amount of political power to go with it. So <clears throat> a fellow by the name of Dr. Henry Kissinger entered the global stage in a big way uh, during this era. He goes and meets, as I said in the last episode, with Hafez al-Assad. He meets with the Israelis. He meets with the Saudis. He meets with everyone in this region. He flew wow. all over this region doing deals. Um, and and they developed a term for it, which was basically shuttle democracy. Shuttle, sorry, shuttle diplomacy. Because he would mm-hmm. shuttle around <laughs> doing right. deals with people who wouldn't talk to each other and stitching up alliances. Um, Now, he did a deal with Israel and Syria and promised to that the United States would uh, lead a, a peace process where they would all get what they wanted. Right. And, Not impossible. Go ahead. And that was enough for Assad to convince the Arab oil producers to lift the embargo in March of 1974. Basically, wow. Kiss- they must have kissed his ass then after that. Kissed his Assad, yeah. Uh, Kissinger, <laughs> Kissinger, and Assad kissed the Assad. Kiss Assad, kissing. I see what you kiss did Assad's there. Assad's ass. Yeah, kiss Assad's ass. Kissinger kissed Assad's ass. Um, Kissinger went and said to Assad, "Listen, convince everyone to lift the embargo, and we will." we will get you what you want, which is basically Israel to return to the 1967 borders. You're going to get back Golan Heights, uh, the West Bank. uh, Jordan's going to get back the the West Bank and uh, the the Gaza Strip's going to go back to Egypt. It's all going to be good. We're going to sort it all out. Just trust me on this. And Hafez went, okay, you have a very charming German accent. Uh, I think you can be trusted. But at the same time, and this was a closely held secret until last year. I fucking kid you not. Until six months ago, this was a closely held secret, in fact. Okay. (laughs) Washington began negotiating with the Saudis and offered them a deal which involved military hardware and training and technical support 
in exchange for promises that there would never be another oil embargo from the Saudis, a reasonably good price on oil, and for the Saudis to use the US currency as their currency for trading, for their petrodollars, for the, do- the, the, right. the currency that they sold dollars in. So this was a deal concocted by Kissinger um, and negotiated by the recently minted U.S. Treasury Secretary, William Simon, ex-Solomon Brothers, uh, ex-formerly Nixon's Energy Czar. Do you like the way I said recently minted Treasury Secretary? That's clever. <laughs> it's a play on words there, Ray. Minted yeah, Treasury. Yeah. yeah, you get it? Fucking laugh yeah, when I make uh, jokes, man. It's hour three. Okay, even, it's past yeah, my bedtime. Even if I think I stole that joke, it's not even in my notes, but I think I read it somewhere. I probably read it. Yeah, I've, Someone much cleverer than me came up with it. Okay. Well, not regarding this guy, though. Anyway. No, it. not this particular gentleman. No. Okay, you have to be It's fu- Well, it's funny because he's the, the recent... Uh, forget it. Anyway, um, <laughs> the basic plan was Washington wanted the Saudis to guarantee that they would maintain oil supplies and prices, Mm -hmm. but the prices could fluctuate as long as they fluctuated with an acceptable um, highs and lows. Yeah, range. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds fair. Yeah. Now, Why does Saudi Arabia need all these weapons? Well, because, you know, they've they've got a lot of money now. (laughs) Okay. They're surrounded by enemies. Yeah, they got a lot of money. They're surrounded by enemies, um, and they were f- still at this stage in the early seventies, pretty much a fucking backwater. Um, uh, that was I mentioned in the last book. Uh, John Perkins, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, talks about when he was working for the World Bank and he went over there around about this era, early to mid seventies. You know, they still had basically goats walking around eating the garbage on the streets because no one wanted to be a garbage man. They were still fairly. Getting right. themselves up to speed, they 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 they'd been yeah. a major source of oil for several decades, but they still hadn't become a, a, a modern country. Okay. Um. So getting back to this deal now, you know, part of the deal was that if any of the other OPEC countries—Iran, Iraq, Indonesia, Venezuela—threatened oil embargoes in the future, Saudi Arabia would guarantee that they would step in and fill the gap. Brilliant. And simply the knowledge that they would do that would probably discourage the other countries from even bothering with an embargo in the first place, right? Right. Now, the, the, in exchange for this, what Washington was going to offer the Saudis was total and unequivocal U.S. political and military support to ensure wow. the House of Saud remain as the rulers of the country. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, as I've said, uh, the newfound wealth in the House of Saud, we know from earlier episodes that they sort of came to power in the 30s, sort of out of nowhere with the help of the British. Um, all of a sudden, they're insanely rich. They're, they themselves are part of a bit of a, a weird Sunni cult, the Wahhabis. They're surrounded by other countries that are eyeing off their wealth, going, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind some of that. Other countries, but at this stage in the early 70s, with you know superior military capabilities, um, Egypt, uh, Syria, Iraq, and Israel. Now, I said before that the US 
maintained their allegiance to Israel. Now, one of the greatest enemies of Israel is, of course, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So here we have the U.S. financially supporting Israel, militarily and financially supporting Israel, and agreeing to militarily and financially support, well, militarily support uh, and politically support Saudi Arabia, who are died-in-the-wall fucking enemies of Israel and Israel's existence. So, complicated. So, the you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, the friend of my friend is my friend, I guess. My en- <laughs> <laughs> um, so My eyes are going cross. Yeah, but this gets back to divide and conquer. How do you stop mm. these Arab oil-producing nations from unifying and threatening your economy again? Fund them all. Give them all weapons and let them fucking threaten each other uh, forever, you know. Now, pile of cash in the process. Yeah. But there's more to this deal than this. Now, as I said, this okay. deal was a closely held secret until September 2016. Um, what happened is Bloomberg filed a Freedom of Information Act request and got access to Treasury documents that spilled all this out. And I'll explain why they did that last year, because there's a story behind that. But anyway, this was secret all this time. Um, I mean, it was suspected by a lot of Middle Eastern analysts, U.S. political analysts, but it was kept secret by both the Saudi and the U.S. government. Now... The Saudis went for this deal, um, and a big part of it, again, was that the U.S. would buy oil from Saudi Arabia, provide mm-hmm. them with military support. But there were a couple of other kickers for this deal. As I said earlier, the Saudis had to only accept U.S. dollars for their oil sales anywhere in the world. Right. And they needed to plough their profits from their oil sales back into the U.S. economy by buying U.S. Treasury bonds. Okay. Now, this is what Henry Kissinger called petrodollar recycling. Now, one of the other things that was going on in the early 70s in the U.S., for people that aren't familiar with this period, anyone who's listened to our Cold War show, listened to the economics episode, will remember the Bretton Woods Agreement. Towards the end of World War II whole bunch of countries met in Bretton Woods, which is in New Jersey, I think, in America, to kind of figure out uh, the how the world's economy was going to run after the war. Uh, as we explained over many, many hours, um, basically the rest of the world was broke after the war, destroyed, their economies were shattered. America, though, because it was protected by two very big oceans, uh, was doing just fine and dandy. And, and they had like 90% of the world's gold, uh, 35% of the world's economy, I think, was coming out of the United States. And so Damn. there was an agreement made that the standard currency for global exchange was going to stop being pound sterling and was going to become mm-hmm. the US dollar, which was going to be backed by the gold standard. Well, by the early 70s, uh, the US was running out of gold. And so Nixon had taken the U.S. off the gold standard, which created a bit of a disaster. And the U.S. economy was hemorrhaging from that, as well as, 
you know, the oil embargo and Vietnam. All the other things you mentioned at the end of the other episode. Good gracious. The 70s were a hell of a time. Yeah, the U.S. economy was fucked. This is back, like, in the mid-70s was when New York went into bankruptcy. And this starts the rise of Donald Trump. He starts buying up New York property. If if you haven't seen it, watch a great documentary that came out last year, Hyper-Normalization by Adam Curtis, uh, which... Talks about the rise of Hafez al-Assad and the rise of Donald Trump uh, and brings them all together in the Syrian civil war. Anyway. Um, So, yes, petrodollar recycling. So the part of the genius, Kissinger's genius in this is that if the Saudis would only agree to sell their oil for US dollars, all these other countries in the world needed to buy US dollars in order to have them on hand to be able to buy oil, which started the rise of the greenback as, as the petrodollar, pretty much saved the U.S. economy. Um, and that's a whole other fucking story we can go into. Basically, uh, it also enabled the U.S. to get oil pretty much for free. When you're buying oil for U.S. dollars and you can actually print U.S. dollars, you can basically <laughs> print whatever you need to good deal. get oil for free. And then... <laughs> the money that you're printing, we explained fiat currency in those economic episodes, is being bought back by the Saudis. The Saudis are buying this money that you're creating to prevent hyperinflation from happening by saturating the economy with money. Anyway, long story. Uh, long story short, this secret deal with the Saudis not only saved the US economy in the 70s, but also funded the U.S.'s second wave of economic growth through the 80s and 90s. Gotcha. Now, as I said, this story was kept a secret. King Faisal bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, when he signed the deal with William Simon, the head of the U.S. Treasury, insisted that it stay strictly secret. And it did up until Bloomberg got access to these cables last year. Now, the reason it became an issue last year Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the Saudi Arabian government threatened to start selling off $750 billion in U.S. Treasury bonds if Congress passed a bill allowing the kingdom to be held liable in U.S. courts for the September 11th attacks. Damn. And so people started... High stakes ju- poker. Journalists started going, well, how much U.S. Treasuries does Saudi Arabia actually own? When did that happen? And they started picking apart the story, and this whole story came out. Now, one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that the king of Saudi Arabia wanted this to stay secret was if other Arab countries found out that the Saudis were propping up the U.S. economy... And the mm-hmm. U.S. in turn were propping up the Israelis. Ooh. That's uh, not a good story. That's not a good look. It's a, it's a big kick me sign on your back. Particularly when you're trying to me. position yourself. Like, we, we, we control Medina and Mecca. We are the uh, leaders of, you know, the Arab community worldwide. But we're also indirectly propping up the Israelis, the hated enemies of the Arabs. So they said, no, well, we'll do it, but you need to keep it a secret. Um, So this all came out. Now, getting back to this September 11th 
uh, uh, fucking liability. A bill was drawn up to allow this to happen. Obama vetoed the bill, saying that he didn't think U.S. citizens should be able to sue the Saudi government for their role in mm-hmm. the 9-11 attacks. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, it's, it's, it's become um, quite clear in recent years as some of the redacted yeah. sections of the 9-11 Commission's reports come out is that various elements of the Soviet, so Soviet, Saudi uh, government, royal family, intelligence agencies were probably very actively involved in the 9-11 attacks. So Obama's position was, if we allow American people to sue the Saudis for shit that the Saudi government have pulled, Mm -hmm. then we're going to get sued by people of other countries for the shit that we've pulled. Can't have that. No. Also, by the way, they pretty much control our economy, the Saudis, uh, along with the Chinese. Um, And if they sell off treasury bonds, they can crash the value of the US dollar. Anyway, he vetoed the bill, but then uh, in September of 2016, Congress passed the bill anyway, overriding Obama's veto. And just a few days ago, 22nd of March 2017, a lawsuit was brought against Saudi Arabia by, I think, the families of 850 victims or something from um, 9-11. So that is going down at the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. The implications for the U.S. are enormous. Um, If a government can be sued for its involvement in, you know, secret attacks on other countries, my God, this is is all going to come home to... I mean, I, I don't think the U.S. is even a signatory to the International Criminal Court for exactly that reason. They've always said, right. fuck no. <laughs> yeah, all this United Nations shit and everything, okay, but uh, we've got a veto there, so we can always go, ah, sorry, fuck off. But uh, the ICC, no, we don't get a veto in a criminal court. Look, we love justice and democracy and everything, but not point. when, not to a point. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's not get ridiculous here. Ideals are one thing when you talk about them, but when yeah. you actually have to live them, right? Oh, that's, no. that's well, well. Here's the other thing. Let's say, um, let's say Trump keeps put, pissing off China. Saudi Arabia starts selling their notes, and China jumps on board. Said, "Oh, America's vulnerable now," and then they sell theirs. Yeah, that, that's Crash. DP DP people. Yeah, <laughs> double penetration. DP the U.S. economy. Oh, my God. You should put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> now, the other thing that's going on at the moment, which is interesting, is Saudi Arabia, because they are cash-strapped at the moment, because oil prices are down, Right. partly, I, I have read, as a deliberate strategy to destroy the Russian economy, because it relies on oil. So by keeping oil prices down, mm. you're going to, you know cause problems in Russia. But then that leads to Russia going, okay, well, who do we need to invade to support our economy? And then the Americans go, oh, look, they're invading fucking people, so now we need to go. And, you know, it's it's this whole cat and mouse game that's being played. But anyway, it's really hurting Saudi Arabia. So they're in the process at the moment of floating off their main crown jewel, Saudi Aramco, we mentioned in an earlier episode, their main oil producing and refining company. It's being floated, IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, of course, the other great thing about that, A, the Saudis get access to quick cash. Right. B, 
you know, you've got to imagine that certain US entities oh, yeah. like Goldman Sachs and Donald Trump are going to end up with a huge stake of Saudi Aramco once at IPOs. They're getting in on the ground floor of yeah. that float, you can well imagine. Damn. Well, maybe, anyway. Maybe it would be good for us to own a big chunk of that to, to be able to retaliate. Who, who knows? And it, it would just be good for us, you know, because everything, like you well, said, when you say war. What? Oh, so when you say us, do you mean you and me? Or? No, uh, United States. Sorry, sorry. So United States. Yeah. Oh, so I was like gonna, it. I was gonna start pulling the coins out of my pockets, man. Get in on that shit. I thought you had a contact. No, no. So, but like you said, every form of economic or whatever, it's all warfare and just a different, different form. And this, this is still going on today. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out. Anyway, this is where we need to talk a little bit more about one of the architects of this whole plan, uh, divide and conquer the Middle East, Dr. Henry Kissinger. Okay. For people like you and me who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, uh, particularly the 70s, very, very famous uh, name, Mm -hmm. strode the globe like a behemoth. and, you know, was, was the key architect in many ways of America's foreign policy as it survives today, certainly, you know, the latter stages of the Cold War. And we will talk about him in more detail on that series too, I'm sure. Uh, but just quickly, we'll, we'll, we'll give a quick overview, I think. Um, so Kissinger was born in Germany. Um, and his family, he was born in like the early 20s. Uh, he... They were a Jewish family. They fled the Nazi regime in 1938 uh, and ended up in New York. Henry was 15 at the time. Mm. He uh, becomes a naturalized uh, American citizen. Uh, when he's about 20, towards the end of World War II, he joins the uh, army. Uh, then he goes to Harvard, where he became a specialist on nuclear strategy in the 50s. Um, actually was a proponent of the idea of limited nuclear engagement, mm-hmm. that, that you should use nuclear weapons to strike first and strike small in order to prevent a larger nuclear engagement. He believed that the moral approach was to use nuclear weapons to take out your enemy's ability to launch a larger war that could lead to a larger nuclear war. Jesus. War. Anyway, uh, if anyone has seen um, Dr. Strangelove, yeah. the famous Stanley Kubrick film, well, Dr. Strangelove is based in part on Henry Kissinger. Um, so then later on, he in the early 70s, he becomes the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, uh, both for Nixon and Gerald Ford. But in the mid-70s, he set out deliberately to create conflict between the states in the Middle East. This was a deliberate strategy that he's been quite open and clear about in his many writings. Um, and And the reason should be obvious after listening to the last couple of episodes, the oil embargo of 1973 could never be allowed to happen again. So how do you stop the Arab states from unifying well, you keep them hating each other, 
Which isn't hard, to be fair, because yeah. the, the, the Sunni-Shia divide, which, as we now know, because you've listened to this series, has been going on since 632 <laughs> CE. But uh, you, you need to crank it up. You need to yeah. work that shit. These sectarian <laughs> conflicts don't just keep going by themselves. You, you need go. to... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, he learnt this because he's a student of history as mm-hmm. we are, and... He studied, he's in sort of one of the experts, I think, on the life of Cardinal Richelieu, the French prime minister, basically, uh, who defeated the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. In Kissinger's book, Diplomacy, that came out uh, a couple of years ago. By the way, Kissinger is currently 93. He's still, still- alive. Not only still alive, still writing. He publishes a major book on geopolitics every two years. Wow. Boom, boom. He is. And, and, and fucking Hillary Clinton said he was an advisor to her campaign last year. Um, he is still a major force in, in his 90s. And he is trying to Churchill himself. Right. You know, he's trying to rewrite history by being the one who writes history. Yeah. In I've I've read his last couple of books. Um, the last one's called World Order uh, that just came out uh, late last year, I think, and the one before that, Diplomacy. And in all of his books, you know, he's talking about di- diplomatic history. In all of his books, the U.S. is this wonderfully benign, white-hatted superpower True. that believes in democracy, rainbows and unicorns <laughs> and only has only ever done things, including their involvement in Vietnam, in the overthrow of democratically elected governments all around the world, sponsoring right-wing dictatorships and, and, and right-wing militias that have killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. They've always done it for absolutely the highest of noble causes. Sounds right. <sighs> Yeah. Anyway, in his book Diplomacy, he wrote, Richelieu thwarted the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire was divided amongst more than 300 sovereigns, each free to conduct an independent foreign policy. Germany failed to become a nation state, absorbed in petty dynastic quarrels and turned inward. He feared a unified Central Europe and prevented it from coming about. In all likelihood, he delayed German unification by some two centuries. So that's why we had to learn all these different German princes' names and all these different countries and all these different dukedoms and princelings or whatever because this person saw the power, potential power of a unified Germany and did everything he could to keep them apart. That is fucking brilliant. Yeah, well, you know, Richelieu is is thought of as one of, if not the uh, father of the modern nation-state concept mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, managed to keep the Holy Roman Empire squabbling amongst themselves and fighting each other by playing them off against each other while France could build itself up as a, as a major power. So this is what Henry did to the Arabs. Now, Hafez, as, as we've seen, um, wanted to unite the Arabs into a single power that could compete with the West and with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He wasn't alone in that. The Saudis wanted to do that. Saddam wanted to do that. This was the whole idea of the Ba'ath Party and Pan-Arabism. Kissinger, on the other hand, uh, wanted to prevent that and keep them fighting and angry and destabilised to stop them from becoming a major threat to US hegemony. Yeah. 
So he went to Assad and made promises that he was going to help return the Palestinians to their land. He was going to help promote Arab unity as a way to achieve peace in the Middle East. But he was lying through his tight <laughs> German-Jewish-American asshole. And when Hafez found that out, Uh-oh. he warned Kissinger and told him that he would unleash demons in the Middle East that would have implications for generations. And that he, Hafez, had been trying to keep controlled. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out in Syria and Iraq and Turkey and Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Palestine and Lebanon still today. Damn. Now, of course, divide and conquer... Um, as I've said, I think in the last episode, wasn't a new idea. Cardinal Richelieu obviously used it. It's also the same tactic, by the way, that nearly drove Britain bankrupt in the early 19th century, trying to stop Napoleon from unifying Europe. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same thing played out there for people who have listened to the Napoleon series um, that I did by myself with no one else. <laughs> <laughs> You are starting a storm, buddy, but that's on you. Um, you know, the, basically, Napoleon was uh, trying to unify Europe into a, a proto-European Union. Right. Get everybody on board with the, the continental plan that he had to turn them into a, an economic power that could go up against British's naval hegemony at the time. And so Britain uh, literally drove the na- their own nation basically back- bankrupt, borrowing money uh, from a whole v- variety of sources, including some Jewish banking dynasties who, uh, whose name will remain um, absent, because yep. uh, one of them just died too. Um, from, you know, they, they spent their money convincing the other monarchs of Europe and funding their campaigns to fight against Napoleon because right. the idea of a unified Europe uh, was, a, was a major threat to their economic power. So this is, this is an idea that we see over and over again. And I think as we've talked about in the Cold War series, the same thing was happening in the lead up to World War One and World War Two. Um, Hitler was trying to build Germany into an economic power that Britain didn't want. Uh, Japan was trying to build themselves into an economic power that you know China certainly didn't want. America didn't really want. This is this is a very common story when you read the history of of global warfare. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a, a country or a group of countries trying to build themselves into an economic power. So. They can hold their own against their enemies and their enemies trying to stop them from doing that and using all sorts of tactics uh, and justifications for that. Uh, and religion is a big one of those, always has been, um, when really it's it's just a, a mask for the desire for economic supremacy uh, and security. Yeah. Keep the other guy weak, keep the other guy distracted while you gather your forces. But it's you can't really argue. 
It's harder to argue anyway. Well, we need to go fight those guys because they want to have a better standard of living. Right. And, and we want to stop them from doing that. Ah, it's hard sell. Very, yeah. As a marketing professional, let me say, <laughs> you come to me with that campaign, I'm like, ah, look, that's, nah. that's really a hard sell. Um, how about we say they hate us for our freedoms? There yeah, that's an go. easier sell, yeah. you know. You know, that's that's easier. Let's, and they let's want to package take our, that up. They want to take our freedoms away. Yeah, take they want to take the our freedoms. And they want to take our guns. Right. Uh, and Obama's a secret Muslim who wants yeah. to in, install Sharia law. Anyway. Uh, anyway, yeah, Henry uh, still going, 93. Um, proof, I think, that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads at some Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Now, as part of Henry's strategy with the Middle East, he got Egypt to sign a peace agreement with Israel in 1979. So that took one big chunk of the Arab equation, the one that had previously controlled the Gaza Strip out Mm -hmm. of the equation. Right. And there were, again, uh, financial and military promises made between the United States and Egypt as part of that deal, same as they did with Saudi Arabia. Mm. Which led directly to Hosni Mubarak's uh, military dictatorship of Egypt and one of the reasons why the US supported him during the early stages of the Arab Spring. If, 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 <laughs> if people remember when the Arab Spring was happening in 2010, 2011, uh, the US didn't intervene to support anyone in Egypt... One of the reasons, I mean, there are other reasons, like Obama didn't really want to get involved in another fucking war, but one of the main reasons was Egypt, pretty close allies of yeah. the US for decades, since 1979. Um, and, you know, the US, like having a friendly dictator in power, Mubarak was a very friendly dictator. Hillary Clinton fucking loved his ass. Right. Um, everyone loved, all the US, you know, senior elite loved Mubarak. Yes, he might have been a repressive, oppressive dictator, but he was our repressive, oppressive dictator, as we've said. Um, So Kissinger's signing deals, getting these people, these Arab countries. Jordan signed one a bit later, 94, I think. But none of these agreements returned Golan Heights to Syria or an independent Palestinian state. So he betrayed the promises that he made to Hafez back in 74 and you, that he used to end the oil embargo. So, so like Tarkin figured out with Princess Leia, she lied. She lied to us. <laughs> Sorry, it's hour three here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I... Sorry. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, you get points for trying, but in Star Wars, yes. but yes. not a great, not a great analogy, I think. Now, Assad, out of all of this, Assad positions Syria as the leader of the rejection front, meaning they rejected the uh, U.S.'s attempts to call, uh, force Arab nations to make peace with Israel. Hmm. How are we going for time here, buddy? What do we got? 21 plus 18. 40. So we've got 20 minutes left. All right. Let's talk about the constitutional crisis. Okay. 
I thought it was interesting that so when Assad comes into power, 1970, uh, he increases the Alawite dominance of the in the security and intelligence sectors to its pretty much a near. Mo- mo- uh, monopoly. So he's really he's doubling down on that because he knows he has to have that in order to stay in power. Um, and and with these people, these fellow Alawites, they have a direct connection to him politically, personally. Uh, they're kinsmen, they're clients of him. So so things are going well for him. He's getting more secure in his position. But at the same time, it's really starting to piss off the people, and they're, they're just seeing more of these almost second-class citizens taking more dominant roles, having more power in the government, and they're starting to get very, very frustrated with this. Yeah. Now, it didn't help that in 1973, Assad introduced a new Syrian constitution. No? And the original draft of the constitution kind of missed something out. Very important uh, line, probably just a typo, just probably a problem in in the typing pool. It didn't state that the president of Syria had to be a Muslim. <laughs> right. Oops. Now, this Oops. had been part of Syria's constitution since they first had a constitution <laughs> right. in 1920, after the end of World War One. And <clears throat> now this created a, hardline, a problem for hardline Muslims, as you can imagine. Now, why was this left out, do you think? The clause about having to be a Muslim? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Let me let me go out on a um, because Assad didn't have the same religious beliefs as the Sunnis, and so maybe he didn't see himself as Muslim, or maybe yeah. it wasn't that important to him. Yeah. I mean, it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Um- Okay, so we've got this one issue of the Alawites. Um, are they Muslims? Are they not? The other issue is the Ba'ath Party is a secular party. It had a secular government. Ah, right. And they so it were shouldn't pro- matter. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think, th- I think that was part of that. Anyway, caused a big problem. Right. Um, it, it just further uh, exacerbated this perception that Syria was being run by a secular Alawite ruling elite. Uh, and obviously, you know, for Muslims, uh, this is, you know, particularly for, for hardline Muslims, this is not a good thing. They want, an, <laughs> they want an Islamic government governing, at least paying some attention to Islamic ju- yeah. ju- jurisprudence. So there was a series of riots in February of 1973 in predominantly Sunni cities such as Hama and Homs. Mm-hmm. Now, as a result of the demonstrations, Assad amended the constitution and oh, put good. back in the provision that the president had to be a Muslim. Right. He also added a clause that Islamic law would be a major source of legislation. No, but that's not, not good enough. But not the only source. Right. Uh, yeah. So this didn't really help much. And Sunni clerics labelled Assad the enemy of Allah. They called for a jihad against his rule. Oh, damn. Now, this led to a series of armed revolts by (laughs) Sunni Islamists, uh, mainly members of the Muslim Brotherhood that I'm sure people have heard of if they've been following the news at all in the last five or six years. 
They mm-hmm. were play, they they play, they were the government of Egypt for a while, right? Um, until they were overthrown by another military coup. Um, so they start staging revolts. Um, now the, we'll get into that in a second, but the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria had been around since the mid nineteen forties. Um, so they'd been around, you know, as long as the Ba'ath Party and. They were part of the legal opposition in the first years of Syrian independence. They were a political party. In fact, in the 1961 elections, they won 10 seats. Mm. But when the Ba'ath Party came to power in 1963, the Brotherhood was banned. So, of course, when you ban something like that, what happens? Yeah, it goes underground and it gets radicalized. Sorry. Exactly. So this developed then into an armed struggle in the late 70s and uh, it climaxed in 1982. Personally, I don't think I climaxed for the first time until 1983. So they were one year ahead of me. Barely. But to be be fair, in 1982, the Muslim Brotherhood were 42. I was 12. Yeah, peaking, baby, peaking. Uh, in 1982, there was the uh, what's known as the Hama Uprising. Uh, it was a, a bloody civil war fought out between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Syrian army in the predominantly Sunni town of Hama. Yeah, it went on for 27 days <coughs> in the town of Hama. Uh, the, bro- the Muslim Brotherhood against, the, uh, against obviously, Assad's government. Uh, the massacre carried out by the Syrian army under his brother, General... How do you say his name? Rifat? Rifat. Uh, Rifat yeah, al-Assad. Yeah, basically ended uh, the campaign. Yeah, but it was for 27 days. Just brutal massacre. Again, this is not about religion. This is not about whatever. This is just about practical power. And they just d- attempted to destroy this group of, of, um, of, of people opposing them. Yeah. And now, when in the build-up to this, in 1980, in a newspaper article that Rifat uh, was quoted in, he said the government was prepared to, this is the quote, sacrifice a million martyrs in order to stamp out the nation's enemies. Damn. That would have been a tenth of Syria's population at the time. Um, then in August, September and November of 1981, the Brotherhood carried out three car bomb attacks against government and military targets in Damascus, killing hundreds of people. And then they took control of Hamar in February, 2nd of February 1982. Under Rafat's leadership of the military, um, Hamar was just bombed. They bombed the fuck out of Hamar. Population of Hamar at the time was about 250,000 people. And over the course of that 27 days, somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 people were killed, depending on whose estimates you believe. Right. Um, Yeah, and just one thing, just to show how, I don't know, how how important it is to these people, so I'm not trying to mock it in any shape or form, but when they were amending the Constitution, paragraph 2 of Article 3 declared that Islamic jurisprudence is a source of law, but not the absolute source. So, I mean, they were nitpicking these words. It had to be Muslim. It had to be, it had to be the absolute source that, you know, the theocracy, if you will, or whatever. But the fact that he was trying to set it along secular lines, plus along with him being an Alawite was just enough for these people to risk 
you know, certain death or whatever, and take to the streets with whatever weapons they could get and to take on the, the Syrian military. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. It's a source. It's not the source. I don't think. Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, so... And this is all important because we need to understand that these sectarian tensions are real. They have been around in Syria for a long time. Right. And they were used by Assad... Uh, the father to justify a lot of the emergency laws, emergency measures, and you know repression or oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, in fact, I've got some quotes here again taken out of Robert Fisk's book. Um, he said Assad at the time in 1982 said nothing is more dangerous to Islam than distorting its meanings and concepts while you are posing as a Muslim. This is what the criminal brothers are doing. They are killing in the name of Islam. They are butchering children, women, and old people in the name of Islam. They are wiping out entire families in the name of Islam. Death a thousand times to the Muslim brothers, the criminal brothers, the corrupt brothers. And uh, Fisk now, also wrote, I just want to throw this in, Fisk almost also wrote about the, uh, the massacre that it was the single deadliest acts by any Arab government against its own people in the modern Middle East. So again, everybody was acknowledging that this was just truly brutal. Of course, now compared to what's going on nowadays, that was just them warming up. Yeah. Now, Fisk, and and this book that I'm quoting from, The Great War for Civilization, I think that came out probably 10 years ago. So obviously well before the current... um, carnage over there but he mentions that he uh, was in Damascus uh, around about this time and he met with a, a junior government employee and this is this is the quote from the book he says um, a junior government employee necessarily anonymous but genuinely loyal to Assad tried to explain this to me as we lunched at the Sahara restaurant in Damascus mm-hmm. it's an expensive cafe of white linen tablecloths and bow-tied waiters owned ironically by the man who oversaw the suppression of the Hamar Rebellion, the president's brother, Rifat. I know you you disapprove of what happened at Hamar, Robert, the killings and the executions, he said. But you must also realise that if our president had not crushed that uprising, Syria would have been like Algeria today. We tried to talk to the brothers at first, to negotiate with them. We didn't want this bloodbath. We asked them, what do you want? They said, the head of the president. And, of course, that was the end. We were not going to have an Islamic fundamentalist state in Syria. You in the West should be grateful to us. We crushed Islamic fanaticism here. We are the only country in the Middle East to have totally suppressed fundamentalism. And over our plates of chickpeas and tomatoes and garlic-pressed yogurt, the lodal arak burning our mouths, one could only reflect upon the devastating truth of the man's last statement. So keep that in mind, folks, when we're talking about all of this in light of what's happening today. Yes, Hafas al-Assad and Bashar, probably to a lesser extent, were brutal, but they also managed to suppress Islamic fundamentalism in their countries. 
and you know, yes, yeah. ten to thirty thousand people died in the Hamar massacre, but in the last five years, we've got five hundred thousand dead in Syria, right. twelve million displaced as a result of well, the civil war. But there's a large part of that is the fundamentalism of the the rebels, as we'll get into as we move on through the show. And, and I if I wanted- could be. I'm just real quick, if I can be self-centered for, as an American for a second. Yeah, the Civil War is absolutely horrible, but but you're right. You make a very good point. It could have been a very different Syria, um, being one of the many countries aligned against the United States, if they had adopted fundamentalism. So, again, it's all bloody, but it's all relative at the same time. And uh, this, the, the Hamar uprising in 1982 sort of was the defeat of the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria for the time. It also destroyed the militant Islamic movement that had been growing um, since Assad's coup. Right. And um, as Hafez was able to keep a tight control over Syria for the rest of his lifetime and, and well into Bashar's as well, the the military and police force that he built up and the intelligence force, mm-hmm. their uh, computerized intelligence uh, and um, wiretapping and all of that kind of stuff, which is not good. We don't like it, but they right. used it to maintain peace. I'm not justifying it, but they used it that way. And, and, and there was a lot of lot of brutality along the way. but um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was trying to remember, I was trying to count the coups in Syria since the French left. I lost, uh, I can't think, about four or five or whatever at some point. But yeah, so when um, when Assad comes along in 1970, there's no more coups. I mean, obviously people have lost rights. He's got a state of emergency going on. Uh, people are being suppressed. But it's not a quite the exact same thing when you have little bits of civil war breaking out and, and people dying every time someone else tries to take power. So, so again, in relative terms, he was keeping things a lot more quiet and calm than they had been before he came to power. And that's where we're going to leave this episode because the next chapter, uh, we're going to start talking about Lebanon, the Lebanese Civil War of the 70s, mm-hmm. the rise of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, Syria's role in Lebanon, uh, which includes, uh, well, the, the Lebanon's civil war, I mean, includes right. the s- deadliest single day death toll for the United States Marine Corps since World War II's Battle of Iwo Jima and the deadliest single-day death toll for the United States Armed Forces since the first day of the Tet Offensive uh, and the deadliest single terrorist attack on American citizens prior to September 11th. So that happened in Lebanon. We're going to get into that in episode 1.7. Before we go, another review. This is from Jimmy Jaco from Australia. Peer through the veil of shit particles is his review. I'm going to do this in my most ochre Australian accent. Intrigued by the awesome logo, I stumbled across this podcast, which I love and am now addicted to. Ray and Cam, our beloved podfathers, are back to give an insightful and hard-hitting show that delves into the propaganda that we are now waking up to globally. It's starting to sound like Monty Python doing an Australian accent. What the fuck's up with that? <laughs> i got to get back to my country Queensland roots. Listen, as they pull apart the matrix and expose the lies of governments and the press, we've been lied to our whole lives, 
And this podcast creates a great framework for us all to apply when reading the fake news in the post-truth society of the new millennium. I highly recommend subscribing to the show and all their other podcasts as these two intelligent, nay, determined giants of the podcast world lean forward and give us a reach, give a reach around to us all. Thank you, Jimmy. Shoot me an email, Cameron Riley at gmail.com with your address. We'll send you a thank you gift. Well, folks, uh, that's the end of 1.6. I still have thousands of words left in my notes, but I overprepared as usual. Literally, yes. But I hope uh, it's all starting to come together now. We are getting very close to the Arab Spring, but there's a bit more backstory we still need to catch you up on. Context. Um. Follow me on Twitter, at Cameron Riley. Follow me at Facebook, Cameron Riley. Join our Facebook page, The Bullshit Filter. Follow Ray, World War II Podcast on Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, Facebook Ray Harris, yeah, his, Jr. Yeah. History of World War II Podcast. Uh, Come by and say send hi. Us, send us emails. We love hearing from you. Seriously. Absolute, that part's true. Don't. Yeah, yeah that I, part's absolutely true. Look, Ray never replies to emails. Don't take that personally. No. He's just... I'm one man. man. I'm one man. Well, not even one, like half a man, really. <laughs> I'm three fourths of a man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but send me emails. Uh, you know, um, uh, seriously, when when you do shit like this, I know from where you sit, it may seem like we are windswept and interesting, famous world travelers, uh, <laughs> women throwing their panties at us on stage. And whilst all of that is true. It really is just us sitting in our closets, talking into the air and hoping somebody gives a shit. So uh, we love you. We love your chatter on Facebook. We love your emails. We love your tweets. Keep yes. it up. Let us know yes. that you're listening. Join the forum at thepodcastnetwork.com. Uh, ask questions. Um, debate. Tell us where you think we're wrong. Yeah. Um, Fine tune. This is a journey for us as much as it is for you. So if if you are more uh, knowledgeable about certain aspects in this show, which I'm sure some of you, if not so, many of you are, Mr. Kissinger, then, uh, let us know. Hey, Henry, shout out. Uh, <laughs> what, what? Let us know and we'll, we'll correct any misinformation because we do want to keep this filtered of the bullshit. Absolutely. Okay. That's fucking it. Where's my outro? There it is.